the chaise long, on the chaise long, on the chaise long, on the chaise long, all day long, on the chaise long, on the chaise long, on the chaise long, on the chaise long, all day long, on the chaise long, on the chaise long, on the chaise long, on the chaise long, all day long, on the chaise long. It is 3.22 p.m. Tuesday, April 12th, 2022. My name is Brian, and uh, this is episode 21 of For All Time. It's been a little while. Thanks for coming back. Working on a couple different programs, as you know. Um, I'm just going to go ahead and start it off with this March 23rd, 2022, uh, page 6 section of... The New York Post. Lone Wolf again. Wolfgang Van Halen is howling from the rooftops. The son of late rocker Eddie Van Halen breathed a sigh of relief. He also breathed a sigh of relief after Kylie Jenner announced that she and Travis Scott are changing their son's name from Wolf to something else. Because, quote, we didn't really feel it was him, she said. Van Halen, 31, who goes by Wolf on social media, tweeted in response to the seven-week-old's name switch... Thank fuck, all caps. Several fans joined him in finding humor in the news. Quote, as someone impacted by a Kardashian naming their child Mason, I can appreciate this wholly, one person communicated, referring to Courtney Kardashian's eldest son, who's a sweet little sweet pea. Um, what else is on the... Oh, here we go. Making waves. At the relaunched Bucket Regatta in St. Bart's over the weekend, VIPs included singers Jimmy Buffett, James Taylor, and Mick Jagger, supermodel Ava Herzegova, former Disney CEO Bob Iger, and Netscape founder Jim Clark, still kicking around there from the, the Netscape clout, and Diana Taylor and Wendy Schmidt. We hear, said a sailing spy, Bob, Wendy, Diana, and Jim all sailed. Yet another thing Bob Iger is good at. He won at his yacht class, Le Elegant de Mer. 30 yachts vied for prizes. America's Cup Hall of Fame and National Sailing Hall of Fame member Tom Whidden won in the category Le Mademoiselle de Mer. Giving T. Hanks. Tom Hanks above gave Pittsburgh uh, gave a Pittsburgh wedding party the surprise of a lifetime on Saturday when he asked to take a photo with the woman of the hour. He was like, hey, I'm Tom Hanks. I would love to get a photo with you. And I immediately froze. Bride Grace Gualti told KCRA of the chance encounter. Quote, I don't know how or what to do. Hanks, who's filming in town, spotted her at the Fairmont Hotel. He reportedly told her, you look so beautiful. I'm so happy for you. And I just wanted to read about Tom Hanks um, 
just wanted to read about Tom Hanks. I just wanted to read about Tom Hanks. Um, ah, here we go. Crime is finally paying off for socialite scammer Anna Delvey, who has a potential new career as an artist pricing her sketches at $10,000 a piece. Following interest in a free Anna Delvey group art show last week on the Lower East Side, which included five of Delvey's drawings, we're told the one-time art world grifter is working on a debut solo show. You can uh, check out uh, Inventing Anna on Netflix if you want a little bit more of the dramatization. Dramatize, the dramatization of the story. Chris Martin, who is handling art sales for Delvey, tells us the solo show will be more guestless focused with the celebrity clientele as opposed to the grittier group show. Martin said the pieces by Delvey, the nom de guerre of Anna Sorokin, will be made with prison-approved materials from the ICE detention center she's being held in. We were able to get in paper that is 9 by 12 inches, he specified. While plans are still being finalized, Martin said he's hoping to have 20 works by next week for an April show. He added, if you look at her sketches, she has legitimate talent. And I will add, um, this is the woman who was famously um, got away with uh, dining and dashing for a long time on the premise that she was like a German socialite and famously like, uh, you know, walked away from a table with like a $3,000 bottle of wine in the check and they were like cool with it because they assumed everything was like on the up and up. That's uh, that's that's the revolving door of uh, doing it real. Anyway, Jeff Koontz launches a moonshot. Artists are racing to exhibit works on a lunar surface by Kelly Crow. This is in um, the Saturday Sunday Wall Street Journal. Uh, Jeff Koontz is at a race to be the first man to display his art on the moon, an exhibit that could net him a fortune. Mr. Koontz, the world's most expensive living artist, is known for creating mirrored steel sculptures evoking balloon animals that have sold for as much as $91 million. Now, the artist has made an... I already had it open. There we go. He's made an artwork he thinks can survive a 238,900-mile trip to the moon aboard a lunar lander, slated to take off this year. To succeed, he will need to rocket ahead of rivals, including Sasha Joffrey, London-based painter who gained fame last month for creating the world's largest painting and is now seeking to install his own art on the moon. As a prelude to its plan to return U.S. astronauts to the moon's surface for the first time since 1972, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, could have just said NASA, was asked several... Uh, has asked several space robotics companies to design their own pod-like lunar landers to ferry scientific instruments in gear to the surface without a crew. At least two also planned to send up art, though it's unclear which one will be ready first. The lander with Mr. Kuntz's art is hitching a ride aboard a Falcon 9 rocket provided by Elon Musk's SpaceX, while Mr. Jaffrey's project will fly on the Vulcan Centaur rocket designed by United Launch Alliance, a joint venture between Lockheed Martin and Boeing Company. The artist who wins won't be able to claim full pioneer status. A postage stamp-sized ceramic tile etched with drawings by contemporary artist Robert Rauschenberg, John Chamberlain, Clay Odenberg, Forrest Myers, David Navros, and Andy Warhol is believed to have been smuggled aboard the second human moon flight. Apollo 12, according to the Carolyn Russo, according to Carolyn Russo, a curator of art at the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum, 
But nobody can prove that the piece known as Moon Museum actually made it to the surface. It supposedly stuck to a leg of the lunar module that remained behind, and nobody has since paid it a visit. Mr. Kuntz's Moon Phases, by contrast, is meant to attract a wide audience and wealthy collectors. Speaking in detail about his project for the first time, Mr. Kuntz said it centers on 125 miniature moons he created to illustrate how sun and shadow appear to carve the moon into phases, from full to eclipsed. As a plane flies overhead. He lined up these nearly weightless plastic orbs into a clear, heat-resistant cube that will be attached to the lunar vehicle. Nearby cameras will photograph the cube after the lander touches down on Oceanus Procyliarum, a vast area on the visible side of the moon. The resulting photos will be minted as Mr. Kuntz's first NFTs or non-fungible tokens that serve as digital proofs of purchase for items like art. A hundred will be sold, with the first set of around 15 versions priced at $2 million a piece. Later versions may be priced higher. Each NFT holder will be able to claim long-distance ownership of one of the miniature moons in the cube on the lander, though individual elements can never be removed. The artist said, buyers will also each get an encased metal alloy moon about the size of a basketball that they can display on Earth, the artist said. A gemstone will also be added to these moon sculptures to pinpoint the lander's exact locale. I was 14 when we first walked on the moon, Mr. Kuntz said. He said he has been enamored ever since, noting that he's used spherical shapes often. He's, He's a lunatic. This time around, Mr. Kuntz assigned the name of a famous historical person to each of the moon phase for, from Plato to Picasso to honor mankind's accomplishments. I want this work to deal with my history, but also applaud humanity's aspirations, he said, adding that giving each moon phase a nameplate will lend the project a trophy feel. The word trophy represents an award that you give for transcending and getting better. So in that sense, trophy art is fantastic. Because of the moon's extreme temperatures, the lander's cameras and other equipment will shut down after two weeks. Mr. Kuntz's piece will remain in perpetuity, according to Jack Fisher, a retired astronaut overseeing the initiative. Mm, The Intuitive Machines lander program set to carry Mr. Kuntz's art. Mr. Kuntz uh, said he has been reassured that his piece will launch ahead of any rivals. Quote, I'm trying to stay philosophical about it, he said, but if my work turns out to be the first, that's fantastic. Mr. Joffrey said he's equally up to the task. Last month, the swirling abstract painter made headlines after he raised $62 million for charitable causes by selling what has been described as the world's biggest painting, spanning an area of at least three basketball courts. This seems like a lot. (laughs) He has also been working on a project to place nearly a 10-inch wide metal alloy plate on the moon. The plate has been engraved with an embracing couple and 88 hearts. He said this piece, We Rise Together with the Light of the Moon, has secured space aboard a lunar landing vehicle designed by Astrobiotic Technology, Inc. Mr. Jaffrey said a prospective buyer has pledged roughly $75 million to buy his engraved plate. It will be dropped onto the lunar surface by way of a robotic armature to be left there. The artist will then make and mint 20,000 NFTs to be sold later to raise charitable funds. No way he will beat us, Mr. Jaffrey said of Mr. Kuntz. 
Seems like healthy competition to me. Between a couple of motherfuckers with a lot of money. And the NFT angle really helps sell it as useful and um, not of all waste of time, money, effort, anything else. Space time, space flight. Launch pad space, rocket fuel, I don't know. If you want to stay philosophical about it, it's really important to think about how much money you're making for your estate, I'm assuming, if you're that old, or you're 14 when the moon landing happened. Okay. This is in uh, Thursday, April 7th. Life section of the USA Today. A little bit about author E.L. James, who you may remember. Up here. Fifty Shades left its mark on author as well as readers. It would be a bit of an understatement to say E.L. James' Fifty Shades of Grey had an effect on the publishing world. Looking back over the decade since its publication, the novel, which started out as fan fiction, morphed into a juggernaut, affecting both publishing and pop culture at large. My goal was to sell 5,000 books and maybe see the book one day on bookshelves, says James. It was just ridiculous, you know, the speed at which everything happened and the escalation of everything. It was amazing. What can I say? It was totally crazy. The novel first popped up on USA Today's radar in February 2012 when it made its debut on USA Today's best-selling books list at number 132. In a matter of months, it topped the list at number one and remained there for 20 consecutive weeks with follow-ups Fifty Shades Darker and Fifty Shades Freed rounding out the top three. It later returned to the top spot two more times. Not only did Grey sell more than 15 million copies, making the number one book of the decade, it is also the number two book of all time on USA Today's best-selling books list. Just in time for the book's 10th anniversary, Bloom Books released a limited edition hardcover of Fifty Shades of Grey on Tuesday. On Tuesday. Only 20,000 copies are available. Special editions of Fifty Shades Darker and Fifty Shades Freed will be released in August and October. Gone is the ubiquitous book cover of old, replaced by a silver flourish on a dark blue background. The design, a wink and a nod to Anna and Christian's relationship, came from James herself. Look closely, and you'll see the flourish is a whip. I just thought, why don't we do this? And the publisher said, yes. That's a quote. A silver ribbon in the book is a nod to the original cover's iconic title. I I'm going to say also, you don't have to look closely at the flourish to see it's a whip. It's a cat of nine tails. It just, it is. Anyway, I just thought, why don't we do this? And the publisher said, yes, a silver ribbon is, yeah, okay. James looks back at the past decade of Fifty Shades of Grey with USA Today. Here we go. Here's the meat. Question. Before Fifty Shades of Grey, you wrote fan fiction for Twilight. Did you write other fan fiction? Yes and no. I had never heard of fan fiction until after I discovered Twilight, and I've only ever written that. But a few years ago, I remembered that my friend Jemima and I, who we went to school together, used to write Starsky and Hutch... fan fiction for each other so i guess twilight was not my first time dabbling in fan fiction but it wasn't called fan fiction back then what was it about twilight that made you want to write 
James. I had seen the movie, and I really enjoyed the movie. And I remember that Christmas, I said to my husband, I really want the books because I hadn't read the books. I sat down and read all the books in five days. It was like a holiday. I had two reasonably small kids as well, just ignored my children, and had a vacation. It was a fantastic vacation. I was just completely consumed by the story. I thought it was masterfully told. I sat down, and I'd always wanted to write, and it was like, let's give this a go. I started writing a story, and I wrote another story, and then I discovered fan fiction, and I thought, this is marvelous. I'll have a go at this, and then I started writing what would become Fifty Shades. Have you met Stephanie Meyer? No, I haven't. I love to, a great deal. She just flipped the switch, and she inspired so many people, and so many of my author friends met through the Twilight fanfiction world. I'm a twihard, through and through. Fifty Shades of Grey landed on USA Today's best-selling book list, went to number one, and stayed there for 20 weeks. What's your reaction? It was amazing. I mean, I've said this many times. My husband and I call it the year of the great madness. <laughs> Along with the success came backlash in 2015 and a Twitter Q&A. Did it surprise you? No! I'm a successful woman. A successful, middle-aged, overweight woman. So you expect the haters? I did. Oh, God, yes. I spent half an hour before saying, guys, you need to get up on top of this trolling. And then it happened. And I didn't actually see any of it. It was fun. And it was one of those things where you think, I'm not sure if this is a good idea. And it just makes you think to trust your gut always. If you put yourself out there and you become phenomenally successful, people will be absolutely and utterly expletive to you. I've got quite a sanguine. I've got quite sanguine about it. Mm, yeah. I try and avoid it. I hadn't set out to upset people. Yeah, okay. Of course you did. Why would you? Some say you brought the BDSM community into the mainstream. Did you set out to do that? I didn't mean to. And Fifty Shades isn't a BDSM story. And also, it's not about the BDSM community. It's about these two people. I had at least seven submissives, women, who are in the sub lifestyle, who've come to my book signings and say, this is my life. Thank you for writing this. And I just think this might be your, the reader's life. This is just these two people. Hmm. These books shouldn't be carrying the weight of the BDSM community. Some critics also thought that Anna and Christian's relationship was somewhat toxic. And she says it's their relationship. It's not called Fifty Shades of Black and White. It's called Fifty Shades of Grey. So there we go. It's their relationship. People project what they think these people should be doing, and writers project what these people think they should be doing. And people are random. People are strange. I mean, Christian is probably one of the most damaged people that I've ever come into contact with. You've never come into contact with him because he's not real. So what you think of it is down to you. You're a producer on the films. How hands-on were you, or were you just a fan? I wasn't a fan very much. It's very hard having people having your work interpreted by other people. The first film I've only seen once. The other two films were so much better. The films were a real learning curve for me. The actors did a fantastic job, and I think Dakota Johnson especially was great. Looking back over the past 10 years, what has been the highlight? I think of the responses from people who love it and the letters, and I get quite emotional even thinking about it. I think about the people who have told me they've managed to conceive a child when they haven't been able to, how it's helped them through their chemotherapy or having a kidney transplant, or they've lost someone that they love. You think about all the hate, but the thing that counts is people that we've really touched. I think all of that is just extraordinary. Where do you see yourself 10 years from now? 
Oh, I hope I'm lying on a beach with a very large cocktail. That would be really nice. I have a lot of stories I want to tell, so I'm continuing to write, and I'm enjoying it. Will we be seeing a continuation of Fifty Shades, or is is it the end of it for Anna and Christian? I think by writing Freed, which is from Christian's point of view, I filled in some of the gaps we find out, and we find out more about him, and you know why the way he is. I think that we have left them in a good place. Hmm. Well, now we know all we need to know about the history of that. And I'm going to skip that. That's just, uh, that's too, I'll keep it for next time. Um, yeah, here we go. A labor movement for choreographers. This is from the uh, Sunday t- uh, New York Times, March 13th, 2022. Long simmering issues will be addressed by a new guild by Margaret Fuhrer. The entertainment industry is in the midst of a dance boom. Steven Spielberg's West Side Story and HBO's Euphoria are using dance to drive storytelling. TikTok Dance Challenge are proposing... Ah, I'll start again. TikTok Dance Challenges are propelling songs of the Billboard charts. Everywhere you turn, on TV and in film and on the internet, there's dance everywhere, said the veteran choreographer and director Vincent Patterson. So what is owed to the creators of the choreography that's helping movies, television shows, music videos, and social media campaigns earn millions of dollars? About a year ago, during the Lola pandemic shutdowns, more than 100 entertainment industry choreographers began meeting to consider this question on the audio app Clubhouse. The gatherings offered a chance for generations of artists to take stock of their profession and speak candidly about their challenges and concerns. A consensus emerged. They deserved better and many of them were ready to fight for it. Hearing stories about these major choreographers that I looked up to, having their work be reused in commercials and reused on competition shows and reused on Broadway without them being compensated or getting credit, it was appalling, said Kyle Hanagami, a creative director and choreographer. At the clubhouse meetings, quote, I think it was a lot of us realizing, oh, you have the same problems I have? Why are we not working together to fix our problems? Over the next year, those conversations, facilitated by Catherine Burns, an Emmy Award-winning choreographer, led to the creation of the Choreographers Guild. Now in a soft launch stage, the Guild is in the process of becoming the official labor organization for entertainment world choreographers, who are anomalies in their un—excuse me—in their union-dominated fields. Yes, choreography is as yet an un-unionized um, field in total, in that it is not even really cohesive as an industry at large, or at least was not until the last couple of years or so. Which is uh, funny to think, uh, considering we've been uh, lauding choreographers for, and knowing choreographers in the public eye for, I mean, Paula Abdul is a great early example, but um, before that, for sure. Um, uh, When I learned this, I was actually surprised to find out that they didn't have a guild. Um, I was surprised. It's also part of a larger movement among commercial dance creators pushing for more compensation, more recognition, and more respect. Despite their influence, choreographers have been persistently and often bafflingly sidelined. In the more traditional worlds of film, television, and music videos, there is little standardization in choreographer pay or crediting. 
and choreographers are often forced to sign away the rights to their work. In the wilder wilds of YouTube and TikTok, where choreography is frequently built to go viral, questions of crediting and compensation for dance creators have become especially complicated and urgent. The people who are creating these dances that are taking over the world, they've been done such an injustice, said the director and choreographer, Jaquel Knight, a supporter of unionization efforts. It's the undervaluing of both the artist and the art. Choreographers working in theater, though also sometimes undervalued, have been covered by unions for decades, and commercial choreographers have made attempts before at collective organization, usually by seeking membership in existing unions. In the early 1990s, a group of commercial choreographers tried associating with what is now known as the Stage Directors and Choreographers Society, the organization that protects Broadway's dance makers, but ultimately that effort failed. More recent tries, led by the advocacy group Choreographers Alliance, have focused on SAG-AFTRA, the union that represents commercial dancers and social media influencers. Those efforts have also proved unsuccessful, though the alliance has now been folded into the Choreographers Guild. At the root of these thwarted campaigns is a lack of understanding, even among veterans of the entertainment world, about what choreographers actually do. That's partly because they're a relatively small group. Unlike camera operators or costume designers, choreographers are not required on every set. But when they are involved, their purview can be broad, involving aspects of direction, production design, and casting, a distinction that makes their poor treatment even more bewildering. Sometimes I'm calling things out on the mic to help the actors hit their marks because it's also a stunt and because someone's doing a tango somewhere, said Burns, a member of the Choreographers Guild steering committee known for her work on the TV show Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. And then I'm taking to all the departments to make sure everything is doable within the time frame. I do a lot. Still, she said, she is constantly correcting colleagues' pronunciation of choreographer. It's choreographer, which... I've been saying. That's funny that people in the world don't know how to say it. The marginalization of entertainment world choreographers has had a long history, dating to the early days of the movie musical. In the 1930s, film choreographers, then known as dance directors, began to develop a sophisticated camera-specific choreography that delighted audiences. In this period, it's dance numbers that the marketing departments used to sell the movies, said the dance critic and historian Deborah Levine. The success led to the creation of an Academy Award for Best Dance Direction, but it was given just three times from 1935 to 1937. In the late 1930s, members of the mighty Directors Guild of America, arguing that the term direction should apply only to the director of a film, successfully lobbied to eliminate the dance direction category from the Academy Awards. Over the years, several honorary Oscars have been awarded for dance achievement. The Emmys and the MTV Music Video Awards now include categories for choreography, but without a union, efforts to secure recognition for choreographers, let alone pay standards or benefits, have been hobbled. Choreographers did not always have a union, uh, excuse me, choreographers did not have a union to fight for their rights and to clarify things like crediting and pay, Levine said. It's not coincidental that the fight for respect and representation has been most difficult in the areas of the dance industry that are anchored by minority talent. Over the past 20 to 30 years, black dance has been heavily amplified, heavily popularized in all facets of entertainment, said Craig E. Bayless, a former dancer and music industry veteran who is advising the Choreographers Guild. That this community is centered in black and brown creative leadership I do believe that this works out for those who do not 
who don't want to see it organized because they're able to take advantage of people who are not traditionally aligned with access and opportunity. Multiple artists said that the current efforts to improve the treatment of commercial choreographers feel as if they are inextricably linked to the race, racial, excuse me, the racial justice movements that arose early in the pandemic. The prominent role that dance plays on platforms like TikTok and YouTube, where creators of color are often driving forces, has raised more questions about what it means. To be a commercial choreographer. What constitutes fair compensation for an artist whose TikTok dance helped a song earn a significant streaming revenue? In these media, the ripples choreography can make are massive, and they're fast, and they're lasting, said Alexandra Harlig, a scholar of popular dance and media. And at many points in this outgrowth of the ripple, other people are earning money from the labor of these choreo choreographers. Excuse me. The question of crediting becomes particularly important on social media, where choreographers where choreography is often intended to jump from body to body. Right. Meme see, meme do, as it were. To a certain degree, the success marker is how many people learned the dance and replicated it, Harlick said. So people often encounter dances not through the choreographer, but through a culture broker of sorts, often a white person with a large following, who divorces the labor from the creator. There have been repeated outcries in the past two years over white influencers co-opting the work of black TikTok creators, including Jaliah Harmon's Renegade Dance. Renegade, Renegade. Oh, that's a great one. Love that. And the many uncredited dances performed by the white TikTok star Addison Rae on The Tonight Show. The hashtag Black TikTok Strike campaign organized last summer emphasized the centrality of black dance creators to the platform. Over time, adding a DC dance credit tag, which identifies a dance's original creator, became, uh, became part of the TikTok etiquette. But its usage is far from universal. Some choreographers see copyright as a particularly useful tool for commercial dance artists, a way to permanently link a popular dance and its for-profit use to its creator. Knight, whose choreography for Beyonce and Megan Thee Stallion has repeatedly gone viral, recently started Knight Choreography and Music Publishing, Inc. to help commercial choreographers copyright their work. One of them is Kiara Wilson, the creator of a popular TikTok dance challenge to Megan Thee Stallion's song, Savage. With help from... That's a great dance... With help uh, from, I don't even watch TikTok. Uh, with help from Knight in partnership with the technology company Logitech, she is now in the final stages of securing copyright for that dance. Wilson first tried to copyright the Savage choreography after it exploded on TikTok in 2020, but she was unable to complete the labyrinthine process, one that is especially difficult for dance creators working in the endlessly self-referential self digital space. Social media dance challenges, for example, often use popular and easily recognizable movements as building blocks which makes them easier to learn, but can complicate the legal establishment of originality. Even highly technical commercial dances even sometimes include movement and sampling and remixing, like Knight's own allusions to the work of Bob Fosse in the choreography for Beyonce's Single Ladies, which you'll see uh, that move used quite frequently in a lot of different choreography, or similar, very, very similar hybridization of that choreography. Um... And I will say that this makes me think a lot of the current debate in the music scene um, over like uh, Olivia Rodrigo's work, but also a couple others um, where they 
her music producers and the publisher will allow her to put out Olivia Rodrigo to put out an album where half the songs basically get 50% of the royalties taken away because I'm not going to blame her because she's like underage. She's literally a minor involved in this like music making process or was at the time anyway. Um, I find it, um, I feel like the music industry just like slotted that at her doorstep just to like, well, I don't know. I don't have any evidence for that, but I really do feel like the music industry slopped all that at her feet to make her the poster child because she's um, the perfect person to do that to if you're the industry. Everyone's going to love her no matter what. She'll take a little bit of a pay hit. She won't even know what she's missing anyway from their perspective. It works. And plus then you make uh, her the poster child for the issue and was she going to defend herself? No. I mean, you know, uh, Paramore is going to get that money, as they deserve, honestly. Um, but I, uh, I digress completely. The practice is why Patterson, a supporter of Knight's intellectual property work, does not own the dances he created for Michael Jackson. Excuse me. Strengthening copyright protections is also among the goals of Choreographers Guild, and the ownership concerns extend beyond copyright. Knight is looking for ways to eliminate the work for hire documents many commercial choreographers have been required to sign for decades, giving up legal rights to their dances in order to receive their daily rates. The practice is why Patterson, a supporter of Knight's intellectual property work, does not own the dances he created for Michael Jackson and Madonna in the 1980s and 1990s. Every other artist has ownership except for choreographers, Patterson said. Can you imagine if Dali wasn't allowed to sign his paintings? The plight of commercial choreographers runs parallel to that of the commercial dancer. Though many entertainment world dancers are covered by SAG-AFTRA, they are still fighting for compensation and treatment that reflects their contributions. Hanagami, who is a member of the Choreographers Guild Steering Committee, said the establishment of union and other uh, protections for choreographers will make them more powerful allies in the dancers' fight. We all have to look out for each other, Hanagami said, and I want to make sure that choreographers are given the ability and the authority to say, hey, you need to take better care of these dancers. Patterson, who has participated in multiple unionization campaigns, says he feels optimistic about this one thanks to the dance's recent ubiquity in popular culture. Many commercial choreographers have also become social media celebrities in their own right, um, making their stories and struggles more visible. I would also say a lot of the choreographers out there are fantastic. Um, go look up... Uh, oh, I can't remember his name right now. Doesn't. Um, I'll, I'll bring it up another time for sure. Uh, the ideas have always been in either the, uh, either in our little pocket or getting out of the pocket, said Ackerman Jones, creative director, choreographer, producer, and member of the Guild Steering Committee. More people are hearing us and seeing us. The Choreographers Guild website went live in January, and its Instagram account became active a few weeks ago. The Steering Committee is hosting weekly calls with a core group of supporters. With the help of Bayless and the labor organizer Steve Sidawi, both former SAG-AFTRA employees, guild leaders are developing the organization's infrastructure and preparing to file as a 501c5 labor organization. Navigating those logistical intricacies, Burns admits, can be a slog, but the hope is that this work will help a commercial choreographer reach the point where they can presume a certain level of respect and get on with their art. We want to create a system that advocates for all of us, Burns said, so we can show up to our jobs and just worry about being creative. You know, instead of, can you please credit me? That was written by Margaret Fuhrer. Wonderful little story. I love that. Goes well with our next one. 
Which is the story that I said I was going to say, but now I'm going to read it. Okay. This is from Thursday, April 7th uh, Times. Amazon Union Success Opens Labor Leaders' Eyes by Noam Scheiber. After the leading, excuse me, after the stunning victory, actually, hold on, I'm going to take a quick break um, just for a sec. I just need to get some supplies here. And until then, I'm going to play this wonderful, wonderful song for you. I need to lie down, only just got up. I feel so uninspired, I feel like giving up. I feel like someone has punched me in the guts, but I kinda like it cause it feels like After the stunning victory at Amazon by a little-known independent union that didn't exist 18 months ago, organized labor has begun to ask itself an increasingly pressing question. Does the labor movement need to get more disorganized? Is that bringing the microphone closer to my face? <coughs> Coca-Cola. Um... Unlike traditional unions, the Amazon Labor Union relied on almost entirely on current and former workers rather than professional organizers in its campaign at Staten Island Warehouse. 
For financing, it has turned to GoFundMe, appeals rather than union coffers built from the dues of existing members. It spread the word in a break room and at a low-key barbecue outside the warehouse. Oh, multiple low-key barbecues. In the end, the approach succeeded where far bigger, wealthier, and more established unions have repeatedly fallen short. I wonder why. It's sending a wake-up call to the rest of the labor movement, said Mark Diamondstein, the president of the American Postal Workers Union. <laughs> we have to be homegrown. We have to be driven by workers to give ourselves the best chance. The success at Amazon comes on the heels of worker-driven initiatives in a variety of other industries. In 2018, rank-and-file public school teachers in states like West Virginia and Arizona used social media to plan a series of walkouts, setting in motion one of the largest labor actions in recent decades and forcing union leaders to embrace their tactics. White-collar tech workers have... Before... Don't you love reading the newspaper with me? Isn't that great? I'm sure, sure hope it is. That's kind of the idea, anyway. <coughs> All right. Nope. Okay. Uh, the white-collar tech workers, what do they do? They organize protests at Google and Netflix over issues like sexual harassment and prejudice at transgender people. Netflix. At colleges like Grinnell and Dartmouth, workers recently formed unions that are unaffiliated with existing labor groups. And at Starbucks, where workers have voted to unionize 10 corporate-owned stores and filed for elections in roughly 150 more over the past six months, the campaign has largely expanded through worker-to-worker -worker interactions over email, text, and Zoom, even as it is being overseen by Workers United, an affiliate of the Service Employees International Union. Non-union Starbucks employees typically receive advice from their newly unionized counterparts, then meet with coworkers in their stores, distribute union cards, decide whether and when to file for an election, and respond to media inquiries, responsibilities that professional union staff members often carry out in traditional campaigns. I can give my opinions. Experience means something, but living it means more, said Richard Bensinger, an organizer for Workers United, referring to the difference between organizing as an outsider and working at a company. Some union officials have criticized the labor movement for being content to shrink gradually, like a wheezing media giant ill-suited for the internet age, rather than experiment with new models and invest aggressively in recruitment. They have pointed to a decline in funding for an AFL-CIO department dedicated to organizing Though the Federation's president, Liz Schuler, has said organizing remains a priority and is funded through different mechanisms. Mm -hmm. My labor friends out there will have to tell me something about this. Please. Please. Please, God, tell me about this. I want to know more than just what the New York Times is saying. But I'm unwilling to read uh, more articles from... Um, oh, no, this is from the other day. Okay, I'll just keep up on the latest. Never mind. You don't even have to bother me. I'll, I'll read it all. Um, <clears throat> other activists and scholars have complained that even when established unions do invest in organizing, some are too intent on controlling key decisions and use workers merely as props who recite union-crafted talking points. In her book, No Shortcuts, Organizing for Power in the New Gilded Age, the organizer and scholar Jane McElvey wrote skeptically of established unions. 
one is advocacy, in which union officials try to hammer out deals with corporate executives or political power brokers to allow workers to unionize, but with little input from workers. Ms. McElvey also questioned an approach she called mobilization, in which the union takes an employer primarily through the efforts of a professional staff, consultants, and a cadre of activists rather than a large group of rank-and-file workers. The staffers see themselves, not ordinary people, as the key agents of change, she wrote. Some union officials have argued that the Fight for 15 campaign, $15, in which the Service Employees Union has spent tens of millions of dollars seeking to raise wages and help fast food workers unionize, and our Walmart, which had similar goals for Walmart employees, were effectively mobilization efforts run largely by professional operatives. Quote, they were engaged in a campaign to try to bring to bear a lot of external pressure with show strikes and community support to jack up Walmart to deal with them, said Peter Olney, a former organizing director of the International Longshore and Warehouse Union, according to alluding to protests involving activists but few workers. My critique is... That was not going to happen. Walmart is not going to respond to show strikes. You have to have real strikes. The critics typically acknowledge that the campaigns helped galvanize support for higher wages, even if they fell short of unionizing workers. Defenders say the goal is to have an impact on a company or an industry-wide scale rather than a few individual stores. All right. They point to certain developments like a pending California bill that would regulate fast food wages and working conditions as signs of progress. In other cases, workers themselves have perceived the limitations of established unions and the advantages of going it alone. Joseph Fink, who works at Amazon Fresh Grocery Store in Seattle with roughly 150 employees, said the workers there had reached out to a few unions when seeking to organize in the summer, but decided the union's focus on winning recognition through the National Labor Relations Board elections would delay the resolution of their complaints, which included sexual har- um, which included sexual harassment and health and safety threats. I'm sorry, is that uh, I don't know why I laughed. I'm just gonna put it out there. When the workers floated the idea of staging protests or walkouts as an alternative, union officials responded cautiously. We received the response that if we were to speak up, assert our rights publicly, we'd be terminated, Mr. Fink said. It was a self-defeating narrative. The workers decided to form a union on their own without the formal blessing of the NLRB, a model known as a solidarity, solidarity union, whose roots precede the modern labor movement. For workers who do not seek NLRB certification, doing so independent of an established union also has advantages such as confounding the talking points of employers and consultants who often paint unions as third parties seeking to hoard workers' dues. At Amazon, the strategy was akin to sending a controversial army into battle, or excuse me, a conventional army into battle against guerrillas. Organizers said the talking points had fallen flat once workers had realized the union consisted of fellow employees rather than outsiders. When a worker comes up to me, they look at me, they see I have a badge on, and say, you work here? They ask it again in the most surprising way, said Angelica Maldonado, an Amazon employee on Staten Island who heads the union's workers' union's workers community. 
I'm like, yeah, I work here. It makes us relatable from the beginning. I don't like that specific description, but I, I mean, it is the facts. In recent years, a variety of groups have sought to make it easier for workers to organize independently. The nonprofit Solidarity Fund has provided stipends to workers involved in organizing campaigns and awarded $2,500 grants to seven Amazon workers on Staten Island last year. A for-profit company, Unit, provides software allowing workers to track the support of coworkers and file authorization signatures electronically with the NL. Was that a for-profit company? Don't use that. Um, don't, don't, don't use that. Uh, to track the support of coworkers and file authorization signatures electronically with the NLRB. I'm, only, I'm new to this still, and I know to say not to use that. The company, structured as a public benefit corporation, pairs workers with one of its professional organizers during the most delicate portions of the unionizing process, such as employer anti-union meetings. It recently helped its first group of workers unionize at Piedmont Health Services, a healthcare provider in North Carolina with roughly 40 eligible employees. The problem for independent organizing efforts is that their momentum can be hard to sustain. Even with such cutting-edge tools, or after securing a win through a strike or an election, the organizing never stops," said Kate Broffenbrenner, director of labor education research at Cornell University. "You can't sit back. For a normal first contract campaign, it averages three years. If Amazon can test this in court, this is going to take a lot longer." Established unions like the Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union, which came close to winning a do-over election last week in an Amazon warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama, and recently notched a victory at the outdoor retailer REI, can provide institutional support to see the effort through. For worker-led unions, such challenges may point to the need for a hybrid approach in which they retain control over their organizations but seek guidance and resources from more established unions, something that is already occurring to varying degrees. The Amazon workers on Staten Island received pro bono legal help from the employees of established unions as well as office space, and with the Communications Workers of America lent them a messaging platform capable of sending out texts to coworkers in mass. At Starbucks, Workers United has paid for extensive legal work, such as litigating the company's challenges to election petitions. <clears throat> One of the Buffalo baristas, as I drink this delicious Coca-Cola, Mm, mm, mm. I apologize. But you're sitting here with me. That's the magic. One of the Buffalo baristas involved in the original campaign, also an organizer paid by Workers United. Interesting. Huh. The question is whether traditional unions, while ramping up their contributions to these efforts, including opposition, research, and other public relations strategies, will be able to resist the temptation to seize control from the workers who fueled them. Mr. Diamondstein. Mr. Diamondstein. Who said his postal workers union was prepared to contribute resources to the Amazon campaign with no strings attached, advised his fellow union leaders to stand down and play a similar long game. We need to make sure this doesn't break down into jurisdictional fights of who's getting these types of workers, these members, he said. But when asked whether he thought established unions would be able to resist that temptation, Mr. Diamondstein confessed his uncertainty. Well, I don't know how confident I am, he said. 
I know it's necessary. That's it. And then there's a bunch of pictures of everyone celebrating. Starbucks people, the uh, people on Staten Island, etc. <coughs> yeah. And then uh, article down below, Biden voices support kind of sort of, you know, no. It's uh, from a few days ago, so you already know the latest. Um, let's see. Yeah, I do want to cover this. I do want to cover this. Okay. The merger of Discovery and Warner Media. Oh, well, let's give you the full the full business. This is from Saturday, April 9th um, Times. In Hollywood, a new giant joins the ranks. I'm just going to kind of skip through this a little bit. It's about the merger of Discovery and Warner Media. Um, it'll put many of the biggest names in movies, TV, and news under one roof, as they say, by John Koblen. Discovery, the medium-sized media company that began as a small cable network in 1985, has completed something once unthinkable, assuming ownership of a fabled Hollywood company that controls Batman, Harry Potter, Sex and the City, Game of Thrones, CNN, and March Madness. Discovery, Inc. and Warner Media close their mega-merger Friday afternoon, adding a new behemoth to the entertainment industry. Two companies will combine television, movie, and news operations that draw revenue of nearly $50 billion, forming one of the biggest media companies in the country. The decision by AT&T, Warner Media's parent company, to spin off its entertainment division and merge it with Discovery in a deal announced in May will be felt through the media world in the months to come. It could push smaller competitors to hunt for deals to beef up in size, and it means that rivals like Netflix, Disney, Amazon, and Apple now have a new ferocious competitor for streaming dominance. The job of making the merged company a success falls to David Zaslav, the garrulous 62-year-old veteran cable TV executive who has been running Diz... I wonder what the rest of that word is on page B5. Oh, finally got my brain back. Okay. Let's see. There we go. Side column. Um, they've been wanting to get Discovery for 15 years. He will take over as chief executive of the new company, which will be called Warner Brothers Discovery, and a nod to the Hollywood studio starting in nearly a century ago. <clears throat> it's funny that... um, God, the company's been... Had, so many names. So many names. Today we begin to write an exciting next chapter for both companies as Warner Brothers, Discovery, a pure play storytelling company that brings together the most cherished content brands and franchises, Mr. Zaslav wrote to his new employees in an email late Friday afternoon. Mr. Zaslav's Discovery has been no slouch. The company owns cable networks like Food Network, HG television tlc and has the rights to an enormous array of nonfiction programming ranging from the highbrow oh and this is uh this is what we cover on the other podcast i bet you only you know three or four people are listening by now because i've been uh i don't know i feel like i've been boning this one up but i have an entire podcast about this entire uh, world of reality television um and if you go i, I just uh, got the discovery subscription if you hop on there god Damn, there is some content on there. Reality television. All the TLC stuff is under that roof. 
And of course you got Food Network and all that, but, and I'm not here to advertise. I'm just saying that like all of the content is out there. I have all the services now and that's for the other podcasts, but I just wanted to cover here. Um, and I may even cover this a little bit on the other uh, podcast. It's a short story, but um, I'm heavily invested in who owns the rights to these nonfiction worlds of uh, reality television. I feel like that's just um, important historically. And if they're all owned by one company, what does that even mean? I don't know. I'm not saying anything in particular. It's just weird. It's just weird. That's all. Probably something more, but I'll just say weird. Mr. Zaslav's discovery has been no slouch. The company owns cable networks like Food Network, HGTV, TLC, and has rights to an enormous array of nonfiction programming ranging from the highbrow natural history programming like Serengeti to low my 600-pound life, and my feet are killing me. But now Mr. Zaslav is entering a much bigger and more rarefied position in the entertainment world. Unlike his more understated predecessors at AT AT&T, he has been bursting with enthusiasm for the last year while coming closer to taking over a powerhouse that will include HBO, CNN, TBS, TNT, and the huge film and TV studios of Warner Brothers, which includes... All that stuff that's like kind of like going on with Lord of the Rings and, and the television show. And think about all the things that are Warner Brothers. I mean, The Matrix is technically Warner Brothers. All, all, like everything that's hot and popping right now, a lot of it. A lot of it is Warner Brothers. It's like, let's it's call it, it it's, um, if you have like Disney, it's like in the, uh, well, they're involved. So it's hard to even draw a comparison. Anyway, it's a megalith. This company will be a megalith. Um, and it will live forever, probably. He will move from New York to Los Angeles and has spent many months holding court with Hollywood power players at the Polo Lounge in Beverly Hills. He's been featured in a glossy photo spread in the former home of Robert Evans, the Hollywood producer, whose mansion Mr. Zaslav recently added to his already impressive portfolio of personal real estate. Mr. Zaslav, one of the highest paid chief executives in media, earned a compensation package valued at $246.6 million last year. I believe we're going to be the best media company in the world, he said, after the deal was announced, with a characteristic bit of showmanship. The challenges, however, for Mr. <laughs> Mr. Zaslav and Warner Brothers' Discovery will be significant. With the deal complete, Discovery assumes $55 billion in debt, a sum the company will be under pressure to begin paying down immediately. Discovery has also vowed to find $3 billion worth of savings between the two companies, which will almost certainly wind up in layoffs, particularly for overlapping business functions. And Discovery, which has a long tradition of making low-cost nonfiction programming, has indicated it will not necessarily spend at the breakneck pace it has, as it has become the de rigueur in entertainment. We have, uh, we plan on being careful and judicious, Mr. Zaslav told investors in February. February, our goal is to compete with the lending nope our goal is to compete with the leading streaming services not to win the spending war wise he pointed out that hbo's recent run of scripted dramas included euphoria the gilded age succession and seemed more than sufficient for the network would hbo be doing a lot better if it had three more really successful scripted series at this moment mr zaslav said in february it's not clear that they would be uh one, one, two. One A-level, one really interesting C-level show. 
That's what I would say. Mr. Saslov, who will convene at a forum next week for Warner Brothers Discovery's nearly 40,000 employees, has already started to overhaul the company's leadership. Jason Killar, the chief executive of Warner Media for all of two years, and the Warner Brothers chief Anne Sarnoff, along with a number of corporate officers in charge of communications, revenue, human resources, technology, legal, and finance, were on their way out ahead of Discovery's takeover. Mr. Zaslav has tapped many of his longtime lieutenants for key positions in the new company and has knocked away some reporting structures. Warner Media's key content executives, Casey Bloys of HBO and Toby Emmerich and Channing Dungy of Warner Brothers, will all report directly to Mr. Zaslav. The deal brings yet another leadership change at Warner Media, who has endured a major corporate restructuring in the last few years and whipsawed through stormy ownerships in the last two decades, including one led by AOL in the 2000s, which is my favorite, as well as AT&T and its most recent owner. AT&T bought Warner Media, formerly Time Warner, in 2018 for $85.4 billion with promises to bring streaming, to, streaming video to millions of mobile phones. But under enormous debt burden and facing intense competition in the wireless industry, AT&T quickly backtracked from its ill-fated foray into entertainment and has vowed to pivot back to core businesses like fiber and 5G. So they actually, they're becoming a communications company again. My guess is that kind of pivot will require a huge chart, uh, a, a logarithmic graph of things they want to acquire in the world of telecommunications. I wouldn't be surprised if they get involved in whatever's coming next in that world. Um, but we'll find out together. What an embarrassing chapter that for what was once one of America's most storied companies, one analyst noted last year, John Stank... <laughs> I have said it because this, this is this man's name. John Stanky. The chief executive of AT&T said in a company-wide email on Friday that spinning off Warner Media and bowing away from the entertainment business was one of the most difficult decisions of my life. Well, probably because he wanted to have fun in the entertainment industry. Who wouldn't? I am sure you aren't surprised that it came with a fair amount of anxiety, disappointment, and concern relative to the changes it would trigger. He wrote, All considered, I remain confident that we have set the right path. The creation of Warner Brothers Discovery could prompt changes among existing media companies, forcing smaller companies like Paramount to find a way to get bigger. There's Disney, HBO Max, Netflix, Amazon, and Apple. That's five, said Michael Nathanson, a media analyst, pointing to the leading streaming services. You don't want to be in position six, seven, or eight. At some point, they'll say, we have to find a dance partner. Exactly. How long till Criterion Channel is just included in one of those things? Or all those other things below the top five are included in one of those things, right? Or at an up rate, you know? But that's what I suspect. That's what they suspect, this writer. Um, The biggest question will be what happens to HBO Max and Discovery Plus, the emerging company's streaming services. Initially, the two could be sold as a bundle, but over time, they will be brought together into one giant streaming service, Mr. Zaslav told staff on friday that's awesome hbo and hbo max which consists of new television series and movies as well as an impressive lineup from the warner brothers library have more than 70 million subscribers discovery plus has more than 20 million even brought together that pales next to netflix which has more than 220 million paying subscribers most of them outside the united states 
HBO Max has only recently expanded into foreign territory, though Discovery has built a robust international business. A new giant is born when they prove they have international scale, Mr. Nathanson said of Warner Brothers Discovery. I don't think Discovery content on HBO Max in the U.S. is a needle mover. But because international is such uncontested territory, they can have more impact outside the U.S. That is it. Picture of David Zaslav in 2019. He looks like uh, a guy who runs a company. He has been running Discovery for 15 years. I just found that kind of interesting. So it's good to know the movers and shakers in the top media industry. Christ almighty. I apologize. A star's struggle. A family's bond. Yeah, we're at 107. Okay. This is by... Eileen Nahas, April 18th, uh, People Magazine. It's by Bruce Willis. As the movie icon retires from acting because of a heartbreaking diagnosis, his wife, Emma, ex-Demi Moore, and five daughters unite to support him amid a really challenging time. Let's give you a little update on... uh, Actually, hang on just a sec. Since this is, you know, how many people listen to this podcast? This is just you and me and a few others, right? No one's even going to report anything. Not that there would be anything to report, right? But let's just quickly. Save the last dance for me. 
That's um, that's Bruno. This is also Bruno, but it's enough Bruno for right now. Bruce Willis, his wife Emma, and their daughters Mabel and Evelyn, seven, gathered with a small group of friends and family on April 1st for a very special celebration. Mabel's 10th birthday. Dream big, keep reaching for the stars, and remember to live it up, Emma wrote on Instagram using her husband's... Excuse me. Excuse the day mantra. The party, it's just us, the party marked both Mabel's milestone birthday and an opportunity for the family to come together and enjoy. Emma is especially grateful for the daughters she shares with Bruce, says a source close to her. Everyone is focused on all the happy moments they're able to share. Such moments are now more precious than ever. Just two days earlier, Wilson's family announced the news that the superstar of 67 is retiring from his blockbuster acting career. The heartbreaking reason, a diagnosis of aphasia, a language disorder that is impacting his cognitive abilities. The family wrote in a statement posted on social media by Emma, who Willis wed in 2009, his ex-wife Demi Moore, and his three adult daughters, Rumor, Scout, and Tallulah. This is a really challenging time for our family, and we are so appreciative of our of your continued love, compassion, and support, the family wrote. We are moving through this as a strong family unit and wanted to bring his fans in uh, because we know how much he means to you as you do to him. As Bruce always says, live it up, and together we plan to do just that. The announcement sent shockwaves through Hollywood as well as well wishes pouring in for Willis, a one-time struggling bartender whose brawny charm, one part action hero, one part irresistible rogue, placed him amongst the world's highest-paid actors in mega-hits like Die Hard, Armageddon, and The Sixth Sense. Bruce and I became good friends when we shared two of our biggest hits together, Pulp Fiction and Look Who's Talking. John Travolta wrote on March 31st. Years later, he said to me, John, I just want you to know I feel like it's happening to me every time something good happens to you. That's how generous a soul he is. I love you, Bruce. The global outpouring has touched the family. It kept hitting me yesterday how much love, energy, and prayers were now being sent to my daddy-o. Scout 30 wrote on April 2nd, since his diagnosis. His family is doing whatever they can to support him, says a source close to Willis, long celebrated for his lovingly blended and tightly bonded clan. 
They have rallied around him in a big way to help Bruce cope with what is to come. Aphasia, which discreetly affects language skills and communication, can develop after a traumatic brain injury or can be an early sign of degenerative brain conditions. Willis, who is not known to have suffered a brain injury, continued working until 2021, making more than 15 films in the last three years. Some of those who worked with him on the films say they observed him struggling, at times relying on an earpiece to recall lines. Sometimes it was like he was a little lost, said a source who worked on a recent film with Willis. He would appear very focused, but then he would lose his place. Others say Willis still had plenty of movie star charisma. Rob Goh, who worked with Willis in 2020 on the recently released thriller American Siege, says that when Willis was on camera during his two-day shoot, it was second nature to him. He just turned it on. And then when we weren't filming, we talked about how much he adores his family. He's the kindest man. Those who knew him best say Willis's favorite role is that of a devoted girl dad. His family is continuing on the next page. Is everything to him, says an insider. Bruce never misses anything when it comes to his girls. Since the difficult diagnosis, Willis's close-knit family have demonstrated characteristically united uh, a characteristically united front, supporting him as he navigates an unknown future. As someone facing health challenges, Bruce couldn't be part of a better family, says a source close to Emma. It's been shocking, and it's not easy seeing a spouse decline, but he's trying to keep it together for him. For most of his life, the tenacious Willis has been blazingly self-reliant. Raised in a working-class New Jersey suburb, he found his passion for theater in high school, but it wasn't until he was 30 that he landed his breakout part in the hit 1980 series Moonlighting. In 1988, Die Hard, I know I said it weird again, an unexpected action hit about a police detective caught up in a terrorist plot made Willis a household name. By then, he was also one half of Hollywood's biggest power couples, alongside Moore, whom he had wed in 1987. Even as his star rose, Willis remained an involved father for the daughters he shares with Moore. 59, Rumor, 33, an actress, Scout, a singer, and Tallulah, 28, an artist. They've always been close, said a friend of the sisters. Even as the girls got older, they'd spend holidays together, having movie parties in matching onesies. He only supported their endeavors. He and Moore announced they were divorcing in 2000, though the friendly exes have remained close over the years, appearing on red carpets together with their children and Moore's later husband, Ashton Kutcher. The two divorced in 2013. In 2007, Willis met Emma, a former model who was raised in London. I was surprised at how charming and funny he was, Emma told People in 2020, to which Willis added, I was already in love with her. As a couple, Willis and Emma, who renewed their vows in 2019, built a boisterous family life full of skiing vacations, berry picking, and backyard barbecues. After Willis, sober since 1988, and an avid outdoorsman, began exhibiting symptoms of language struggles. The family drew even closer and recently made the decision together that he should retire from his career. It's been hard, said a source close to Emma, but his family will make sure Bruce is taken care of. Now, as colleagues, fans, and friends worldwide continue to show their support for the renowned star, Willis's words at his 2018 comedy roast seem especially poignant. Nothing can keep me down, he said. I've been attacked by terrorists, asteroids, film critics, music critics, restaurant critics, divorce, lawyer, <laughs> divorce lawyers, male pattern baldness, and none of it stopped me, because I am still Bruce fucking Willis. 
That is it. That's the story. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, that's definitely enough for today. But I'm going to go ahead and play a great outro that I had lined up before, and I'm going to pull it back up. This episode will be called The Return of Bruno. I think. We'll find out. Hmm. There we go.